and welcome to Fuds on Film. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Mikael Haneke, uh, one of the most fetid contemporary European filmmakers. Born in Germany and raised in Austria, this son of actors wanted to follow in their footsteps. Disabused, unfortunately so according to the man himself, of this notion as a teenager, he worked in and around theatre and TV before making his TV directing debut in 1974. After working in TV for a number of years, he made his feature film debut with The Zimente Continent, or The Seventh Continent, a film which featured many of the traits that would mark out Haneke's work. He was brought to more widespread attention after the screening of his film Funny Games at Cannes in 1997, one of those much-publicised types of screenings where, apparently, one-third of the audience had walked out by the end. A type of thing I nowadays believe has absolutely nothing to do with the film um, and everything to do with the audience Mm -hmm. and a desire to be able to say, I was there, I walked out of that screening, as it happens so often, especially at Cannes. Call me a cynic, if you will. (laughs) Uh, Since then, all of his films have been presented at Cannes. He's regarded the world over and receives regular requests from actors to work with him. He's filmed in France, Austria and Germany in the United States and made films in French, German and English, and has racked up awards all over the world, including BAFTAs, Césars, Goyas and Two Palme d'Or. And he is now, in what is sure to be recognised as his greatest accolade, (laughs) going to be talked about, enthusiastically if inexpertly, by a couple of amateur film critics from central Scotland, (laughs) namely me, who is Drew, and him, who is Scott. Hello! Okay, uh... For these episodes, we normally go in chronological order. Partly because we're looking for a progression, but often just because, well, it's an order that exists quite easily without <laughs> having to think too much about it. Mess, it makes things up slightly in this episode. We're going to begin with the first film that either Scott or I had seen by uh, Mikael Haneke. And in fact, to my shame, until this week... The only one that I've seen, um, being yet another director had been on my list for catch-up for ages. Uh, similar to you, Scott? Yes, Cachet uh, was the first Hanukkah film that I saw, uh, back in the dimly remembered before times of 2006, <laughs> and you know, like yourself, given that I liked it, it's a bit of a mystery why I didn't make an effort to seek out the rest of his work, but hey, that's why we're here, I guess. Yeah, um, I, I certainly had been aware of his work for a while, but why I had never got into it, I don't know, but... I have done now, uh, so that's what we're talking about. And yeah. as Scott suggested, we're, we're talking about cachet or hidden to begin with. Yes, uh, in which Daniel tells uh, George Laurent and his wife, Juliette Binoche's Anne Laurent, live a happy middle class life in Paris with their son, Lester Makedonsky's Perrault. And this takes a turn for the sinister when a videotape shows up on their doorstep. A videotape of their doorstep and surrounding environs. Uh, someone is surveilling them and wants them to know it, but apparently not keen on revealing who is doing it. And, well, at least in terms of plot, there's not much more to say other than that as more tapes show up, some with crudely drawn references to events in George's childhood, uh, an atmosphere of threat and mistrust continues to grow, surrounding George's and Anne's relationship as George's uh, seems unwilling to share the events reference for which he clearly harbours some guilt. 
Eventually, this leads back to his parents, their farm, and their decision to adopt Maurice Benchou's Majid, the son of their Algerian farmhands, after they went missing in the Paris massacre of 1961. Is this a belated revenge for childhood mistreatment? Georges certainly seems to think so, although by the tragic end of Majid's tale, I don't think we can say there's a definitive answer to who done it, or indeed that the matter is indeed over. I suppose if we were to judge this solely on the basis of it being a thriller, there's not a lot of satisfaction in that ending, but that would largely miss the point of Cachet. And as a look at the way guilt can cause people to reflect on their actions, or indeed not reflect, this is a fine work, particularly given the strong parallels with Europe's attitude on their colonial past that's still barely being reflected on today. All of this is backed up by what will become a repeated mantra for Hanukkah's work, which is to say that he's assembled a great cast, gleaned great performances out of them, uh, while working with the cinematographer, most frequently Christian Berger, as he does here, uh, to produce something that looks distinctive and compelling, even when it's just a framing of an ordinary street corner. Now, while there's not a film we'll talk about today that I wouldn't recommend on some level, this has perhaps remained my favourite and the easiest to recommend without caveats about mood. The most common knock on Hannigan's body of work is that it's too clinical, although I think detached might be a better way of putting it. And there's certainly that level of distance present in Cachet, although I think that given the subject matter and the way that the film feels like it is watching you watching it, it fits better here than it does in some of the other films we'll speak of today. Annika has made other films that on an individual basis might look better or have deeper characters or have more emotional heft, but Cachet may just remain the best overall balance of Hanukkah-ness if you're looking for an introduction to his work. So, challenging without being overly so, and a well-put-together, enjoyable film. That's Cachet, available in all good stores now. Yes, still still heartily enjoyed this and it was a pleasure to come back to it. Yes, I thoroughly enjoyed this at the time. Still enjoy it now, so yeah, it's always good. Uh, yeah, it's always there's always a, a moment of apprehension to come back to a film that you really like but haven't visited in a while. Yeah, knowing that you've seen a lot of other films in the interim that you've perhaps changed as a person, but by the time we saw this, time we saw this together in the cinema. Scott seems quite likely. Yes. Yeah, I can't remember for certain, but yes. Um, well, by that time, you know, my critical facts were fairly well developed and we'd started our first incarnation of a film um, review website. So I think I had more confidence about this one rather than something I'd see, you know, in my mid-teens or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anything, maybe just, I appreciate the craft of it a bit more now. Mm. Uh, n- not that I didn't before, but I, I appreciate the craft. Um, I don't remember from my first viewing if I had if the the opening had quite the same impact for me, but I just, I, I love that opening, that it's three or four minutes of this almost static shot, and it feels for a while like yeah. it is, until yeah. you notice like slight movement in the plants before mm. even people appear. And then the opening credits are playing over that, and then suddenly you hear the voices of Juliette Minosh and Daniel Atoy, and then the, the tape rewinds, and you realise what you're looking at, it's a video tape. I, I love yeah. that opening. <laughs> it's... It follows very much with Hanukkah's themes of of like detachment, of mm. setting the audience and showing that you're watching something artificial, which is something he does intentionally, and sometimes very overtly, like in this and some of his other films, like uh, um, Benny's videos, mm. which I've not seen more than clips of, but yeah, Benny's video... Um, there's a couple of other films like, but it's very, very deliberate, yeah. um, or very obvious rather. But it's just it's a really striking opening too. And again, as we'll we'll see when we go on, he refuses to 
give easy answers to things. It, it, it's not the business he's in. Yeah, see, um, easy answers are sometimes questions. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, and that's fine because it engages different bits of my mind. Um, I've heard him be... And that, the impression I caught is maybe not that he's been entirely critical, but being a bit critical of films are just for entertainment. Um, and I'm not sure you agree with them there, but like you know, he's saying, if a film's like a package to entertain you, that's going to give you like a beginning, middle, and end, tie everything up. But not every film needs to, but um, but I actually prefer it's a mix of things. I want some films to satisfy that part, but I want some things to satisfy another thing. Mm. Um, I'm not at the point I'm making particularly well, I suspect, but uh, yeah, I, I've, it engages more intellectual parts of my brain, um, Hanukkah's films. I'm thinking of different things because I'm, th- I'm not getting this particular thing out of it, so I've got to look for something else. There are a lot of things I partly can't express just now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's a really good thriller. It's, it sort of feels empty in a way. But at the same point, I think that's part of the point of it. I thoroughly enjoy it. It looks great, great acting. It's um, it seems to be table stakes for uh, Hanukkah. He often writes with a particular actor in mind. In this case, this film was written for Daniel Toy, mm-hmm. which helps too. If you have somebody in mind, you can invite to their strengths. I think that helps too. It's just, yeah, it's a very compelling film. This time around, there were a couple of... There was one particular problem I had, and that's to do with Majid's fate. Why? Why didn't he do something? People don't immediately die, and that yeah. bothered me. Um, it's, like, it's one of those things that, and it's not specific to this film at all. It's like, well, it's convenient for the plot that this happened. Yes, but don't just you've not read your character. You have to assume hasn't read the script. Um, <laughs> you know, do do something. People don't die immediately. You could have tried. But yeah, other than that, yeah, really, really good thriller. Uh, great performances. It doesn't give you any easy answers, but as you say, Scott, you know, not always giving you the questions either. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's just really interesting. This time around, also, when you, and again, th- this is not important, I don't think, other than that, particularly someone like Mikhail Haneke is probably going to take great care about how his sets are designed. So you would imagine that most of the stuff is placed in any given location deliberately for you know, for a good reason. So I'm wondering what the reason for um, the poster on Piero's bedroom wall of the terrible, terrible, terrible Jean-Claude Van Damme-Ringo-Lam collaboration in hell was. It's probably because Jean-Claude Van Damme's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and that's that's what, I, that's what I think he was trying to get across with that that uh, that piece of positioning there. He wanted to work with Jean Claude Van Damme in a, every three reboots of of a Ringo Lam film. I don't know. Yeah, um, it's, it just kind of struck me because I, I hadn't seen that film the first time I watched it. I mean, saw um, we talked about that on the podcast just last year, um, and it's awful. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, but it stuck at this time. But I'll admit, not as much as the poster in the background of one of the other films we saw for this podcast, in which uh, the poster was. Frequency, starring Dennis Quaid, um, which I, I took it immediately as a personal insult. <laughs> but I'm hoping that that poster was just there, not meaningful. <laughs> I really hope it's that. Other than that, it's a very, very good thriller. So, you know, watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Scott, you were saying that um, that this is perhaps still your 
ish favorite would be the word um hanukkah film um or the uh, one you'd recommend most yeah um, it's certainly the easiest to recommend um to a general audience i think yeah uh i think as a more it's difficult to use this word particularly with this director but i think a more straightforward film in an in some ways, anyway, it's, yeah, it's mm. perhaps the easiest to recommend. It's probably the best starting point. Yeah, from what I've seen so far, he's I think he's only made twelve films. I've seen half of them now. Yeah, um, and this has encouraged me to go and check out most of them, except the unnecessary remake, um, the original of which we will come to shortly. Uh, there are actually three films out of the six that I would put basically in the same footing and the same sort of level of quality. Which is good, you know, again, I'm slightly apprehensive about going yeah. to check out the rest of these. And one of them I would actually put ahead of this slightly. But yeah, it's perhaps the most accessible one. It's the most, well, I'm going to repeat the word accessible. It's the, probably the best one to begin with, yeah. Yes. Shall we move on to the White Ribbon? Das Weisse Band, eine deutsche Kindergeschichte. The White Ribbon, a, jo- a German children's story, literally or simply the White Ribbon, it takes its name from ideas found in late 19th century books on education and morality on which the film is based. In particular, the idea that a white ribbon, white being the colour of purity, tied around the arm of a misbehaving or morally delinquent child would promote feelings of purity and goodness and correct their waywardness, as well as marking them out to others. Set in a small German village between mid-1913 and the outbreak of war in mid-1914, the White Ribbon begins with a voiceover from the older version of the village's school teacher, Christian Friedo, seen here as a young German Benny Hill, <laughs> as he tells of the events that occurred in the village over that period, and that he thinks helps to clarify some things that happened in this country, as none of the events, not even the behaviour and, well, character of the characters, can have any impact on that war, and that Hanukkah has described the film as being about the roots of evil. You'll realise, I'm sure, that it's what happened to Germany after World War One that the older teachers ref- is referencing. Though, despite the fascists present, it could be applied to any authoritarian society, and all of the hypocrisies it displays likewise. The village's doctor is severely injured when he falls from his horse returning from his daily ride. The cause of this fall is found to be a wire tied around the base of two trees across his regular route. Soon thereafter, a woman dies in an accident at the sawmill, the doctor's accident is largely put out of mind. But is there a relation between the two events? A number of other mysterious events occur, including fires and the severe beatings of two children. Perhaps it is Martin, the haunted and troubled-looking son of Burkhardt Klausner's puritanical local pastor, who we observe walking precariously over a drop and who tells the teacher that he gave God a chance to kill him. But maybe that's simply because he's an adolescent boy with the attendant urges, and his father was a sort of terrible person who would try to dissuade his child from these urges by telling him cautionary tales about a boy of the same age who wanked himself to death. <laughs> no, really. Yes, wanked himself to death. Victorians were super weird. <laughs> a number of vignettes cover the rest of the year up until the outbreak of war, giving a slice of life of this small village, and, one imagines, other rural German settlements in the early years of the 20th century, in which we observe the casual cruelty of the respected doctor to his lover, and the much more personal cruelty to his daughter whom he is abusing. 
the entirely typical lack of love and empathy displayed by a man whose teachings in religion are based on someone extolling the virtues of love and empathy, apparent death by suicide, marital breakdown, and the schoolteacher's courting of the Baroness's nanny. It's not all bleak and terrible, just mostly. <laughs> I have seen the White Ribbon described as too simplistic, the suggestion being naively so, and that, un- that it unsatisfyingly suggests everyone is to blame for the evils in which the film foreshadows. This is nonsensical criticism. Of course it doesn't explain the rise of fascism. It's a two and a half hour film. It's barely possible to adequately explain anything in that time, let alone how one of the world's most technologically and culturally advanced nations could incubate and then birth one of the most poisonous and harmful ideologies in human history. What it does do, in my opinion, is portray and highlight some of the everyday mundane evils that, left unchecked or unmodified, lead to greater evils and harm applicable to any ideology that creates fear of the other and encourages or even demands unthinking obedience, not simply fascism, and question what we will give up for security or stability, whether that be financial or civil, and what we are willing to turn a blind eye to to achieve that. It's not an entirely successful film. While I'll mention later a bit of Mikhail Haneke's filmmaking philosophy and his disdain for neatness, sometimes a little neatness might be nice. Throughout the White Ribbon is the question of who's responsible for the mysterious accidents and cruel assaults. The strong suggestion is that it's the children of the village, led by the pastor's daughter Clara, to whom the other children seem subservient, punishing others for not playing along or for being different. But it's never explicitly confirmed. And that might be fine if the rest of the film's narrative wasn't largely reducible to some mostly unrelated stuff that happened. (laughs) But... That's a minor complaint and certainly doesn't much detract from the film's power, nor its stark, cold beauty, shot by Haneke's regular cinematographer Christian Berger. It's uncompromising, riveting and rewarding, if incredibly cynical. Yeah, I, I don't know. The White Ribbon didn't do a lot for me. This kind of is a poster child for my main... It might not even be a criticism, it's more observation of Haneke's work. Like, he will frequently preserve up a smorgasbord of human misery and invite you to chew over whichever parts you feel like you might be interested in and then come up with your own thoughts on the matter and there's some moods where I would welcome that trust but the mood that I was watching this and I felt a little bit annoyed at having to guide myself through the complexities of the human experience and a little bit frustrated at Hanukkah's abrogation of a basic point of the work to mull over. Um, It it feels like just a, a list of bad things that happened for a few years and then that's it. It's like, here's just some bad things that happened. Isn't it bad? Yes. Yes, it's bad. I think we can all agree that the bad things are bad and they shouldn't be happening. Uh, but other than that, it's hard for me to get an awful lot of a point out of it. Uh, I, I didn't really see what he was trying to say, if anything, about it. And I think that's probably the point, is that there wasn't really any point to it. I wanted to like this more because it's such a bloody beautiful film. Um, the cinematography is absolutely astounding. It just looks like a beautiful film. I suppose another thing that struck me is it's weird that this is 1913 because it feels a lot like it was 1813 or 1713 or 1613. So it's a very strange mm. um, society to build. I mean, assuming this is in any way accurate, which I've, I think I can it, probably it, buy. Um, it is supposed to be. And certainly, the, I'm not sure about the setting. They, they based it a lot on photo, um, photographs of the time, which is why it looks like it does. That's the yeah. cinematography is meant to mirror those photographs they had. But 
certainly the the philosophies and stuff and all the things that are in it are from books from that time that Hannah had researched and was researching for like a decade before he even yeah. managed to get funding for it. Yeah, but other than Puritans be weird, I'm not <laughs> sure there's an awful lot of there wasn't an awful lot to gain from this. I'm not I'm not sure what what I could meaningfully take from this and apply to my own life or anything like that. It's, it doesn't it feels like something that, that should have had some kind of guiding presence to it, which is annoying when it has a narrator that kind of implies that it might have something that was going to reach that and then it just doesn't because it gets to the end. It's like, well, better go off and have a war now. <laughs> and we never came back to the village at all. It's like, okay, so cool story bro um, <laughs> yeah uh, that that's kind of my real issue with the white ribbon is that I, I felt like I, I felt like I should have got something from it and I didn't and that's not something I'd say with a lot of the other, other Hanukkah films certainly everything else remains really great it's, there's tons of great performances in it um, so really great ensemble performance as I said it looks absolutely fantastic it just some stunning cinematography there. I mean, I'm I'm definitely shallow enough to um, recommend it on that basis alone. Um, <laughs> but it, it's one of his least powerful works for me on the basis that I just couldn't really get my teeth into it in terms of what it's actually trying to say or do. It, it just wound up being a list of miseries that happened, and yeah, I didn't, I couldn't apply a lot more to it than that, which is a bit of a shame. But uh, yeah, still, uh, certainly something I would recommend if you're in the mood for it, if you if you want to see this thing. It's certainly a really beautiful and well-acted film. Uh, the production value is absolutely impeccable. Uh, so yes, it's worth a look on that basis. It's worth a look on a kind of almost historical document kind of basis. Uh, yeah, really good because it's certainly not something that a, a huge amount of uh, knowledge about the kind of immediately pre-World War One uh, Germanic rural culture. So it, it's certainly good to see on, on that basis as well. So yeah, there are certainly a lot of things to recommend in it, but yeah, I, essentially I, I just didn't feel like I didn't get a lot from it on a kind of more intellectual level, which I was kind of expecting. No, I, I really, really did. Um, this is one of the three that I really, really like to set above the others, although it's not the one that I thought was better than Cachet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really did get a lot from it. I thought, yeah, it doesn't give any easy answers of anything. I just, for me, I, I kind of got that it was suggesting that there was some sort of rot set into society, just um, not quite the kind of Hannah Arendt uh, mundanity of evil stuff, but kind of heading towards that and just like the general hypocrisies of the church and the kind of the authoritarianism of of that society although it, it kind of struck me that a lot of it didn't seem like it was that different from say britain at, at the same time i very uh, much doubt it would be different from any point between well n- today and the invention of religion Yes, yeah. it, it did not seem to be in any way specific to you know pre-war or explaining anything about you know, what that could have led to war. And for me, it just felt like uh, the the dark sides of human nature that has been there since there's been humans. Yeah, uh, um, yeah um, I don't think there's anything specific to it for me at least. No, I mean again, it's, I think the film also sets you up to think that it's about World War One, which it clearly isn't. It's about World War Two, the rise of national socialism. Because World War One is, I mean, to be reductive about it, but largely about a bunch of um, aristocrats and royals being pissed off at each other um, and then ruining the continent as a result. Whereas, mm. because um, 
it's unpleasant as, as to think that um, Hitler was elected, you know, and then like the, and so many other ways, the actual, the regular person bore responsibility for it in a way that wasn't the case with World War One. Yeah. And I just think that it suggests that there's some seeds there of just, yeah, it's kind of that authoritarianism and hypocrisy. And obviously I, I got more of it than you did. Um, uh, it certainly gave me a, a lot to think about, although, you know, sometimes um, I would just like a wee bit more kind of... I would like I'll a guide. I would like a starter for ten. I would like <laughs> yes, at uh, least the hint of a question in the first place, rather than having to come yeah, up with all the yourself. You know, I've, yeah, I've got things to do. I'm busy. I'm not, <laughs> but I could be. So you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I get you there. That you kind of like you don't want to have to do all of the work yourself. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this I you know, it's a period that I, I don't know much about pre-World War One Germany, so it was interesting from that point of view at least, and with all the other stuff I've said as well. And you said that you like it's hard to place it at the time, Scott, like you couldn't really tell that I was early 20th century, and I actually think there's probably quite a lot of Europe was like that, because it's hard to imagine really compared to the rest of like well, all of history, quite how fast progress was in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Because World War One started with people on horseback. Yeah. <laughs> And ended with tanks. Yeah. It's it's really kind of hard to to grasp how that quickly that changed. And having grown up in the twentieth century, we're so used to that pace of change. Whereas you know, for four hundred years, you know, things didn't change all that much. Mm-hmm. You know, factories come along and railways and stuff, but still, compared to the pace of change, the twentieth century is so different. So yet, it probably didn't look all that different from it two hundred years before that. Yeah. With the exception of that um, steam engine that was being used for the threshing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, interesting setting. Uh, I really found it a very rewarding film and it is very beautiful. So yeah, so it's a high recommendation for me. What we're going to move on to then is, I would say probably his most controversial film. Uh, it's the one I mentioned in my introduction, which is the, the super fun and exciting and really not at all miserable. Funny Games, Scott. Yeah, it's definitely one to put them on the map, uh, I would say. Um, it's Funny Games. I, I'm going to do Funny Games dirty, I think, in as much as I knew the trick of it long before watching it. And I think that this film, um, and presumably the later remake as well, uh, would work much better without knowing that. And therefore, I caution you, gentle listener, about progressing further if you've not seen it. And I mean, I know this is a 1997 film, uh, but that just means there's a generation of people who may not have heard of it. Um, so... Just consider yourself suitably bespoiler-warned. The well-heeled Schober family, Anna, Jorg and Jorg Jr., played by Suzanne Lothar, Ulrich Mue and Stefan Klepinski, head off to their lakeside holiday home, boat in tow. But before they've had a chance to do so much as settle in, they are bothered by Peter and Paul, played by Frank Gehrig and Arno Frisch, uh, supposedly to borrow a few eggs on behalf of their neighbours. But... That is not the real intention, as they begin a violent home invasion that is initially straight out of a slasher movie, were it not for the moments where Paul launches another invasion through the fourth wall. Uh, In terms of plot recaps, I suppose home invasion with the terrified family trying to escape and suffering violent indignities for it is pretty much all you need. Uh, Soon enough, the more interesting aspect that develops out of it is that their fourth wall endangerment, and I suppose the attempt at making the audience complicit in the suffering of the characters. Frankly, I feel that might be giving it a little bit 
too much of a generous spin, um, particularly as Hanukkah himself apparently calls this an incredibly violent but otherwise pointless film. <laughs> I'm not even sure that it's technically all that violent, as almost all the violence, and the most shocking acts at least, occur off camera. And intentionally so, yeah. Yeah, arguably gives some more impact in a graphic close-up, as might be seen in the horror flicks that I presume he's critiquing. Um, the very act of smashing the fourth wall in such a manner means that Hanuk is again keeping us at arm's length from the characters and the struggles. And certainly for me, knowing this was the real funny game of the film, uh, definitely kept me from be- even being slightly invested in it, even in the early running. So any kind of sucker punch that this might have brought to an audience was well-scouted and negated, uh, which does leave this film feeling... Well, pointless. So, yay. Um, I don't know quite how to take funny games in the abstract. I've seen it said that it's a criticism of the Germanic Heimat films, Homeland films. Mm. And although it seems as well tailored to be a complete rejection of horror film tropes and concepts, which, of course, I completely agree with, it's a trash genre for trash people. But (laughs) I'm not sure that funny games would be convincing anyone else of this. I will add again that the Hanukkah table stakes are suitably met, even this relatively early outing, with solid turns in front of and behind the camera. It's just that the film that's been so precisely made seems to have no precise point. It's an interesting conversation piece, I suppose, and a fairly audacious thing to try and sneak in front of an audience, but it's not going to last all that long uh, in my mind. So a somewhat caveated recommendation then, but I have to confess, it is something that is more likely to land with the audience of people who listen to movie podcasts than general audiences, I would think. So on that basis, it is worth a look. It's an interesting film. Yeah, but... Yeah, knowing the trick of it going into it really sort of defangs an awful lot of it and makes it kind of not laughable, but sort of even more detached than I think Hanukkah himself would have wanted you to be. It's, it's very much sort of, oh, yeah, see what you're doing there. Aye, okay, cool. Yeah. And then it just goes on for a while and it ends. And it's certainly a thing that I watched. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly don't think knowing the, the general idea behind it made any difference to to at all uh although the first time the fourth wall was broken i was really sad and it's like oh you're going to be one of those i'm going to hate <laughs> you aren't i and it's not how it turned out uh with the possible exception of one of these six films there's none of these films that aren't at least interesting i was never bored by any of these films yeah uh, there was enough to hold my interest whether it was like just how it looked or how it was acted or the story or the themes the characters or um in this case like you know, what's he saying you know yes i've seen to scott that it's um at least austrian critics saw it as a as a attack pastiche um something um on the, the high match genre yeah whereas i i, I don't get that maybe it's because i don't really understand what the, the high match genre would be and yeah, that's it, but i mean it, it seems it, it doesn't seem like that at all from what i understand and what little reading up about high match films yeah. i could find in wikipedia it seems absolutely nothing to do with that but who am i to say <laughs> yeah but i was gonna say is yes that's interesting that english speaking audiences at least saw it as like slasher film stuff what I saw it more as um, was something more... Because I, I guess, like, again, the violence you don't see, and it's sort of more shocking for that, but when you see a character with their head missing mm. um, and um, damaged by a shotgun in a way that shotguns don't, mm. it doesn't happen. Yeah, I really don't believe that's a thing that happens. Um, yeah, it's, when you don't see the violence, it's more shocking, and that's the point. He's He said that, you know, um, like, 
you know, like classic horror films, it's the sound of the monster behind the door, the sound of steps and the stairs is much more scary than seeing the monster. Often that's ridiculous. Hmm. See what he's doing there. And I understand his influences. And, um, but like the actual film itself and the violence of it, it never had any effect to me because it's, the sort of violence that's in the film, it's, it's not the sort of violence that ever happens. There's nothing scary to me about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, there, it's a large planet with a lot of people on it. Something like this may have happened, but it's so rare as to like be inconsequential to, yeah. to not count. It doesn't happen, despite what things like the Daily Mail might be wanting to do. I want to believe because what it made me think of, and I don't know if you remember this film, Scott, but it made me think a lot of Cherry Tree Lane. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's so, all. I mean, home invasion kind of stuff has been around for an awfully long time but there seemed to be a little blush of them round about Cherry Tree Lane the first Purge film and others that were in that kind of year there was a little glut of home invasion yeah. paranoia going to it um, yeah that, it, it, it did come to mind although obviously predates that quite significantly yeah um, but yeah it, but that to me it was very much a Daily Mail film and I suppose it's not quite the same film but caught in that kind of on that trajectory, I guess it finishes with some terrible crap like Harry Brown. Yeah. But because that's like, like yeah, it doesn't happen. It has, this has no fear for me. This is not a thing I worry about ever happening. Um, so it has no power over me in that manner. But it's at least interesting. Although, you know, I'm, I'm slightly puzzled as to why it takes like the third person that they meet to ask why they're wearing gloves, because that's just weird. Why did nobody question that before? Like, these people are not acting like sensible human beings. Yeah. Um, yeah, Hanukkah's idea behind this, though, is like uh, he said, you know, I, I give the audience several chances to leave. So the idea is to somehow make them complicit in the in the violence, to, to critique that sort of that violence in film, those genres. I do hate that as a reasoning. Um, yeah. Um, for, for, reasons, for reasons I described at some point in the past about Spec Ops The Line, which tried the same trick and it didn't work then, it doesn't work here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't work because, well, let's just take perhaps the basest reasons. Like, people have paid to see this film. They're not going to just walk out because you're suggesting they walk out and they want to see how it finishes. And you can't say they're complicit in that because you've made a thing for people to watch. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Yes, and it's not like... It, it almost worked a little better in Spec Ops line because if you did stop playing that, then the events wouldn't happen, but the film's going to keep on running regardless as if you left the seat in the audience. So, yeah. yeah, No, no thank you. Um, yeah, so... With what it's saying, I, I don't think it works. His, his reasoning is flawed, let us say. However, yes, it's still very well made. And it's interesting, and um, there's actually there is one section of the film that I genuinely really like, and it's the most human section, and also the most believable, and that's the section when the violent people are gone, and the horrible thing has happened, mm. and you have the two people left, and you know they're telling each other they love each other, and then they're they're making sort of sensible decisions, you know, like you know get dressed, put shoes on so you can run do this thing, and there's a real humanity in that section, and they, they feel like people they don't feel just like you know archetypal or cut out characters in the films like Ulrich Moore and his real wife um, Susanna Lothar they feel like people there they feel like human beings and I've, that sort of section where it's like nothing's happening really is by far the most rewarding section of the film for me yeah 
Uh, and it helps some brilliant actors. I really like Ulrich Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, he's superb in uh, the lives of others. So yeah, there, there are sessions there where it's like actually, you know, it's the aftermath of this thing that's happened to them, sort of. And that's actually the most interesting session. And I'm kind of see that got me thinking. Like I, my my interest was held throughout the film, and it's quite interesting too. Like the the two killers. The actors playing that were told to play it as a comedy, and the Ulrich Moore and Susanna Lota were told to play it as a horror film or a drama mm-hmm. to get that really weird juxtaposition there about how they felt about it. Yeah, yeah, it held my my attention. I just I sort of lost the point I was making there. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> I made a different point and forgot the one I was originally making. That's tangents for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, it's interesting. Actually, I don't like kind of captivated because I was like, "What's the point he's making?" I was getting vaguely aware of the other stuff I'd said. I learned afterwards. Um, it was only kind of vaguely what, what he'd said it was about beforehand, and I'm watching like, "What's this about? Is this actually saying anything?" And like, you know, in the end, um, no. I think is the answer. Pretty much no. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, it held my interest. It captivated me. So I guess that's good. Although. Why there was a basically shot-for-shot remake made in English for some reason is beyond me. I don't understand the purpose of that at all. Um, So so my biggest question coming out of this is, yeah, this isn't all that great to begin with, and then there was a shot-for-shot remake made? Why? Um, No no particular idea other than, again, it was in the middle of that. uh, That remake came in the middle of that whole little cottage industry of home invasion stuff. It might have just been a kind of almost ready-made project that you could put greenlight as long as you run it through Google Translate because <laughs> uh, yeah, it may have filled, were, a, filled that niche but there were a bunch of those one other one we saw um, in a bit of time with Liv Tyler as well the f- oh what's that called the yeah, I, I know the film you're, you're talking about but I can't remember it's uh, it was called something quite silly if I remember <laughs> it wasn't quite the happening the but there's little, yeah um, the stabbed ones no yes <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so there, there really was a whole bunch of them around that time, wasn't there? Yeah. So, yeah, maybe that's why, but it still seems entirely unnecessary. Oh, absolutely, yes. To remake that, um, especially when it's shot for shot. It's like, I mean, it, it's better Michael Haneke making a shot for shot remake of his own film than something like Gus Van Sant for some reason doing it with Alfred Hitchcock's film. That yeah. was just, that was <laughs> strange. But um, The Strangers, was that it? That sounds right, yeah. Strangers, yeah. Yeah, a whole lot of them. That was so... Strangers was 2008. So yeah, around about that time, I wonder what was going on in the mid-2000s. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll blame the Daily Mail because, well, you know, it works most years. Yeah. So why not that one? It's normally the case, right? Yes. So uh, let's move on to the first of today's films about piano teachers uh, with... The utilitarianly titled The Piano Teacher. True. Yes. Um, which in the original French is just the pian, pianist rather than piano teacher, but I'm not sure that particularly matters this time. It's mm-hmm. more just my interest in the translation of titles. Mm. <laughs> this one, less weird than usual. <laughs> A little while ago in the podcast, we talked about the French film La Ceremonie, during which discussion Craig voiced his long held reservations about the French. <laughs> I demurred at the time, in part due to my personal experience with French, but mostly because I reserve my 
reservations and suspicions for the Germanic peoples. <laughs> it being generally only a matter of time before something weird or horrendously inappropriate happens. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever getting their architect out of my memory, sad to say. <laughs> Hanukkah is perhaps less directly to blame for that weirdness here in Le Pianist, or The Piano Teacher, as it is, um, amongst his feature film work, unique in being the only work that is an adaptation rather than written by him. The source for this being a novel by the Nobel Prize winning Austrian writer Elfrieda Jelinek. Here is perhaps the opportune time to mention Hanukkah's personal philosophy, despite most of his TV films being adaptations, that adaptations of novels don't work, and that stories written specifically for cinema are the most successful as the two mediums are quite different. I don't entirely disagree with him, but there are of course exceptions, though I do agree with him in his belief that the writer, or writers, are by far the most important part of any film, and Hanukkah considers himself a writer more than a director. It is then little surprise that Hanukkah subscribes to auteur theory, Something I myself largely do not, film generally being far too complex and collaborative a medium, but this director may be one of the exceptions. Certainly, despite it being an adaptation of another's work, The Piano Teacher is definitely a Mikhail Haneke film. The film itself is about Isabelle Huppert's Erika Kohut, the titular piano teacher, a French woman living in Vienna with her mother. This whole German weirdness thing begins early with the revelation that for some reason, mother and daughter unnecessarily share a bedroom, who teaches aspiring adolescents to play piano, as well as teaching more advanced, talented students in a very competitive master class at a musical academy. One of these advanced students is Walter Klemmer, Benoit Magimel, an engineering student who, after becoming infatuated with Erica to recital, gives up his studies to enter a master class. At the risk of sounding crass, that's not all he wants to enter, and he attempts to seduce Erica. Erica's own proclivities and tastes, most of which are in the realm of sadomasochism, prevent her from having a straightforward relationship with Walter, and he seems disgusted by her desires. It is generally bad form to yuck someone's yum, but it's hard not to hear because Erica's pretty damn weird, beginning with sniffing the used tissues in a sex shop's viewing room and going on from there. In addition, she's also rather evil, cruelly punishing one of her students for the crime of being near Walter, but none of this excuses the ordeal that she is put through in the film's climax as a frustrated and angry Walter enacts a twisted version of the fantasies that she had confessed to him. Good is, of course, a particularly subjective term, but I'd argue that most, if not all, of these films are objectively interesting, and a piano teacher is one such. It is not traditionally entertaining, and again, as you might have gathered so far, intentionally not so, and the ending may frustrate some people, but how do you end a film like this, about this complex, troubled and lonely person? The story is not neat because life is not neat. I watched a very interesting discussion, the one I mentioned earlier, with Hanukkah that was included in the Blu-ray for his most recent film, Happy End, which we will talk about later, in which he described his approach to filmmaking and why he refuses to tie his narratives up in a satisfying little bow. He said, In general, that's what bothers me about the cinema. The world gets explained. But the world is too complex and contradictory to be explained in a two-hour film or 200-page book. That uh, statement is something worth bearing in mind when watching or talking about the Austrians' films, I feel. To return to this film, Isabelle Huppert in particular is superb, 
and amongst the supporting cast there are many standouts, but most particularly Annie Girardot as Erica's controlling and supremely hateable mother. I can't say that I enjoyed The Piano Teacher, but I found it engaging and interesting, though I am puzzled as to the setting. Why is the film set in Vienna? The city plays little role in the events, and so too does the fact that Erica and her mother are immigrants, as all of the dialogues in French. All that it provides is a chance for Hanukkah to work again with previous collaborators like Susanna Lothar and other German actors, and then have to very awkwardly dub them because they don't speak French. Bizarre, but otherwise good. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't read anything in Vienna other than that's where the uh, Vienna was it conservatory, conservatoire was, is, and it's respected. Yeah, but I, I don't know if it could be like Lyon or Paris or Brussels or you know Geneva or somewhere, somewhere that they speak oh, French that yeah. that would not wouldn't have really awkward dubbing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, all I can really say about this is it's a film that I've watched. I'm, I'm left recycling the same kind of general criticisms. It feels like this should be a focused character study and it just doesn't reveal all that much about the characters or their situations. So, again, you, I kind of get to the end of it and go, well, cool story, bro. Um, uh, it's all very well, Hanukkah, saying that he's frustrated by you know films that try to tie up all their narratives and try and explain the whole world in two and a half hours. It's what... I've never seen a film that's tried to explain the whole world in two and a half hours. I've seen plenty that try and describe a small narrative or describe a character <laughs> in two hours, and maybe you could take a crack at that sometime, um, because you certainly haven't done it in The Piano Teacher, where I'm kind of left um, with these interesting and compelling characters to watch, but ultimately I don't really... I get to the end of it and don't really know all that much about what's driving anyone involved in it. That's not to say I didn't... Uh, find myself again liking is perhaps not the right term but was certainly engaged by the piano teacher mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it's it is a film that i i, I, certainly, I don't think i'd ever watch it again but I, I do not regret watching it in the slightest and again all those hanukkah table stakes are there it looks great and it uh all the production designs on point to uh, some again fabulous performances um of sort of unlikable characters um and again, I'm not that uh, hung up on the characters being unlikable. I just would have liked to have cracked open those heads a bit more and got a bit more of an idea of why they're acting this way rather than just watching them acting this way and going, well, that's a bit weird. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes you want a little backstory too. It's like, like I mean, there's a, there's a mention that Erica's father um, is in or died in a mental health hospital yeah um but you know a bit of background like why is she sharing this bed with her or bedroom with her mother that's weird she's got a room there of her own in that house it's big enough <laughs> i get the controlling thing but that bit was weird and yeah um, i don't know just sometimes i want just i want to know a bit more about yeah. the world and about these people i don't uh, say i and it happens in a lot of his work. I don't mind being left with unanswered questions, but I would have liked to have had the information to make some kind of educated guess about what the answers to those questions might be. Whereas mm. at the minute in the piano teacher, I'm left kind of wondering if those questions were actually the right questions in the first place. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, just a lot of things that are kind of left hanging and you, I kind of can't really get get a, a real handle on, on it. Um, but... For all that, it still somehow works. Um, this is Hanukkah's style, and you, I guess you just kind of have to learn to roll with it by this point. And uh, I, th- I think at this point I more or less had, so I was happy to kind of just go along for the ride and see what was going up next. But yes, a very very strange story um, for this, a very strange kind of love affair. Eh? 
kind of um, yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, certainly, it doesn't. None of it rang kind of completely untrue. This felt like something that could happen, but yeah, it's just. It's just strange. That's my overwhelming uh, review of this film. It's just a bit strange. Worth looking at, yes, certainly. Um, uh, as I said earlier, everything that I think is done, I would say, is worth looking at in, in some regard. Mm, but yeah, I maybe absolutely. put this a bit lower down on the list than some of the other ones we'll get to. Yeah, um, this is not my bottom of the, the list for this. Um, but again, there's nothing in this that I didn't... I'm not going to use the word like. Some of them I did like, others it's... There's nothing I didn't find interesting. Yeah. In some yeah. way engaging. And this is certainly one of those. It's just that... I mean, like, Eric has this troubled, suppressed, I guess, and I think desperately lonely woman. Yeah. Who potentially has the chance of a um, a relationship, but in some way blows it, but maybe just well because he was clearly the worst of people. Yes. <laughs> But at the same point, the kind of my sympathy is very much undermined by the fact she does that thing to the student with the glass yeah. in her pocket. And yes, people are complex, and it seems to be a fascination of Hanukkah. Going back to this interview again, it's, it was called Masterclass with Mikael Hanukkah, um, filmed in France with a someone who I kind of feel was a bit like a real life version of Daniel Toy's character in Cache, but for film. Right. Um, they'd written a book with before as well but really interesting interview and he mentions in that that you know he's fascinated by because you, you don't want can't have everything wrapped up neatly because people are complex and you know you might have a, a meeting with a person in the street and you, you come away really liking that person and find a couple of days later ah but they were a murderer so there's clearly some of that in here even with this being an adaptation, although apparently quite different from the source. But still, when you, you have this quite sympathetic character and then undermine them so badly by having them just be evil at one point for not the strongest motivation. Yeah. It bothers me a wee bit. Um, also, Germans are weird. Um, and, you know, I, I could quite happily have, have not had the scene where, um, you know, she's pissing for several minutes while spying on people having sex in a car. You know, <laughs> like literally inches from them doing it, but them being unaware of it. <laughs> I'm not sure that added anything. <laughs> uh, the sniffing of the tissues was probably enough to suggest, you know, she doesn't have your more kind of vanilla f- um, tastes. Had to done. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's still compelling. It's still really interesting. And Isabella Perry is superb in it. Um, I think, you know, like this, and that, clearly, I feel that there are, there are lots to recommend, lots of these films. But even if in the White Ribbon, the cinematography is enough, and this is probably Isabel Luper's performance is enough, yeah. if nothing else, to recommend watching it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, we're moving on then, and to the film that kind of, I suppose, brought him back into my mind. I hadn't thought about him for a while um, after seeing Cachet, but his second Palm d'Or winner, Scott Amour. Yeah, uh, 2012's Amour is Hanukkah's most critically regarded work all the way up to the Oscars, and in a lot of ways feels like Hanukkah's direct response to critics of his usual working style, like what I've been doing in this podcast. It's certainly <laughs> his most intimate and involving work. Um, it's set in Paris, where Jean-Louis 
Shows you know it's uh, George Lawrence. He's a lot of Georges um, uh, in his work, isn't he? And Emmanuel Rivas, Anne Laurent, and a lot of Anne's in his work, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, I may have a point to make about that later, Scott. We'll, yes. we'll, we'll come to that. Yes, uh, so they, they play happily married, retired octogenarian piano teachers whose lives become a lot more complicated when Anne undergoes a stroke. One botched artery surgery later, she's left paralysed on her right side and stuck in a wheelchair, but wants to remain in their home, not a hospital or a care home. Georges promises this and sets about the task of being a full-time carer. And without minimising the events of the film, narratively speaking, that setup will tell you most of what you need to know, uh, with life becoming more stressful and less enjoyable for both Anne and George's first by slivers, already enough to drive and to contemplate suicide, and then by jumps as Anne suffers a second stroke and is left with severe dementia. It's a powerful look at love and responsibility, up to including George's final duty or act of love or crime, depending on how you view these things, and I'm not here to interpret that for you. Uh, but given the subject matter, it's not a film I can say I enjoyed, but it's a film that I, and I'm sure you, will appreciate for its many moments of warmth and of tragedy and of heartbreak, uh, but all tempered with a contemplation of what it means to have shared a lifetime with someone. I feel I should have a lot more to say about this, but I, I don't really. Um, again, the Hanukkah table stakes of it looking greater there, although I suppose even by his standards, he's got an incredible performance. He's from the cast, of course, Trigino and uh, Riva Prime amongst them. It's a hell of a film, and it's a claim as well earned. Uh, there's none of Hanukkah's films that aren't in some way challenging. Uh, mostly, I find, in a sense, of actually connecting with the characters and the events of this film, and it's interesting then to find this challenging for the exact opposite reason. Uh, great filmmaking, but not of the type that will leave you on a high note. No, um, but I thought this was superb. This is my mm. favourite of these six films. Yeah, uh, not necessarily by much, although it's it's such a different film to Cachet. You, you know, it's hard to compare um, and futile, really. But yeah, I just thought it was amazing. Um, again, this is a film made with a particular actor in mind. In this mm. case, it was um, Jean Louis Trantignon, mm-hmm. who he'd been wanting to work with for quite some time. He's amazing in this. Yeah, yeah. What a performance! And because he's he's doing so much of the film on his own. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, uh, Emmanuel Riva is playing kind of unconscious or you know ill at times. So she's not yeah. she's not doing a lot. And I, I don't want to diminish her role, but um, and we've talked about a number of times over the years, Scott, that you know. People get awards, you know, playing someone who's mentally ill or in some way, you know, disabled or handicapped or something. Mm. And that can be difficult, certainly, but it's, I don't think it's actually as difficult as the people having to deal with that, playing yeah. the person dealing with that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she's good, but Jean-Louis Trantin, you know, he's, he's just superb. He carries that film. Um, such a wonderfully expressive face. Mm. Um, and, while a lot of the themes in here are the same as in other films, and you know, it's not always an easy tie up because, like, what happens to George at the end? He's, I mean, my guess is that he has just wandered off somewhere because he sort of dreams his wife and he leaves the flat, but you never see him again. Like, and he's not yeah. there when the body's found. Like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's left a, a bit of a um, curiosity in my mind there. Um, but it's not the specific point of the film. It's just beautiful and touching, and it feels real. Mm. And I, I particularly enjoyed the the way he um, talks to Isabel Luper, who plays their daughter, um, when she comes later. It's like, you know, do you think I'm an idiot? Do you think I haven't had a second opinion and stuff? You know, yeah. <laughs> um, I kind of like that. It's kind of 
entirely legitimate spikiness he had. Yeah. I very much enjoyed the writing and the acting of that. Um, I will say, um, knowing what this film is about, that I was incredibly apprehensive about watching this film. Um, yeah. Because my mum is currently suffering from advanced dementia, which sucks. Mm. Sorry, which really bites. Um, <laughs> I'll leave a clean version in for you, but... Uh, so I was, you know, I wasn't particularly keen on watching a yeah, film that was going yeah. to bring that up. But I mean, everybody's different. Um, everybody suffers from these things differently. But there were some things I recognised in there. Yeah. Both in terms of the condition and the stress that the caregiver give um, was receiving. Mm. Uh, but I just thought it was beautifully done and really touching. And and I appreciated that. I mean, it didn't necessarily go into particularly yucky stuff, um, which is something that comes with both dementia and strokes. Hmm. This poor woman had both. It doesn't really shy away from it too. Like some of the like, you know, bodily functions and stuff, yeah. um, which films like this tend not to do. And it's something that has always bothered me and bothers me more now, knowing much more about the reality of it. And you'll occasionally get a very unexpected film that will kind of cover that stuff. Um, of all films, do you remember from, oh, it had been, I guess maybe about nine years ago, something like that, a film with Robert Downey Jr. and... Yeah, The Judge, yeah. Um, yeah the Judge, exactly, yeah, Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Duvall, mm-hmm. which was, it's kind of like one of those Lifetime or Hallmark movies or somehow it got an A-less cast. Yeah. <laughs> but they actually touched on this stuff, and there's, there's one point where Robert Duvall is, loses his... Um, control of his bowels in the the bathroom and it's horrible but it's sort of thing that happens to us and it just it immediately gave it that that feeling of authenticity yeah whereas there's another film that um, I put about again and you said exactly the same thing that I'm about to say um, at the time I think we both did it's a film from I think it's about 2004 I haven't looked it up I, I don't remember exactly but something like that it's Julie Christie and Terrence Stamp called Away From Her Yes. yes. And it was one of those things that it got so much praise at the time or, and Julie Christie's so good, she's so some of the dimensions. Like, yeah, basically the entire film was she forgot somebody's names a bit. Yeah. <laughs> that that was it. It was like it was nothing like the actual real stuff. It was like, yeah, she couldn't remember some stuff. Um and it got so much praise and it's actually like, pretty crap. Yeah. <laughs> um whereas this this does not shy away from that. It it it's so real. And it's so much more affecting for it too. I just thought it's a, a fantastic film. Um, again, I'd be happy to watch it. No, it's it's very very rewarding. Um, but a lot of people have had um, experience with different family members with dementia or strokes or stuff. So I mean, there's a good chance for a lot of people it's going to make them think, particularly if someone. But it's handled handled so sensitively and so realistically. Yeah. In terms of the way people people respond, that it's. I wouldn't let that put you off. It's a well-named film too, because it's clear, it's about love mm-hmm. um, and companionship and stuff too. It's um, for all that it should be bleak. It's actually, I think, of the films I've seen, quite by far his most uplifting film. Yeah, which is not to say it is uplifting. <laughs> um, we're on a, a sliding <laughs> scale here, yeah. but yeah, uh, but it really is. Um, Again, in other films have covered this quite well. There's a, a Mexican film called Las Buenas Herbas, or The Good Herbs, which covers something very similar. Similar In that case, it's a mother and daughter, uh, although it ends in almost exactly the same way. 
hmm. with the same mechanism. But you do get films that come along and cover this, and they do it sensitively. Um, I think the big surprise is that it was a Mikael Haneke film that was another one of the few that did it so well. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, it never feels exploitative, which uh, could quite no. easily have been, um, particularly given what was happening in it. And um, yeah, it, it's the only Haneke film on this list, certainly, that, that does not try and keep you at arm's length. It, it will no, pull you no, directly no. into it. And it, it's... It, it is much stronger for it. Um, this way, you actually get a hold of what the ideas he's trying to explore are, and because it's explored through the characters who you can identify with, and you can recognise bits of your own experiences in your own life and your own relationships on, and it makes it a better film. So, yeah, there is perhaps a reason for doing it, Michael. Just saying. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. No. Um, it, it is terrific. It is probably the best of the films that we're talking here, I would agree with that. It's, as I say, because of aforementioned uh, uh, paragraph there, it is the least, it's the least Hanukkah kind of film on the list. Probably makes it the best, but if you're looking for the kind of more Hanukkah experience, that's why I kind of say that Cache is perhaps a bit, uh, a bit more representative of his work. Um, this perhaps isn't, but it is also the best of his work. So yeah. it should definitely yeah. be on the list of things to watch if you've not done it already. Yeah. Um, I think it would be quite easy to say, um, and because this came up again in this interview, um, if you can get a hold of it, it's very possible on YouTube. It's really, really interesting. I mean, interesting Hanukkah's work at all. Um, he comes across really personable. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really a rather an engaging talker. But someone comes up, there's a Q&A at the end, and a woman asks, you know, basically, what was your childhood like? And because he's saying, he basically goes, uh-uh, you don't get over that easily because people... When people see a film that they are they're shocked by, mm. um, she may have mentioned funny games in particular. I don't recall now, um, but you know, if people say there's a film that you're shocked by that you know, like it makes you feel better to know, oh, like the the director, basically, or the writers messed up. They had a terrible childhood or something. Mm. It's like, I'm sorry to disappoint. I had a really, really happy childhood. I was really privileged, um, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I had my, my mother and my aunt and my grandmother all doted on me. So you, you don't get away with it easily. Um, but you could sort of feel that um, from his other... F- I had a point in here somewhere. I'll get to uh, <laughs> You could feel that perhaps some of his other films suggest that maybe like, he's got troubles or something. Um with the, this way he seems to view the world, but yeah. no, and I think maybe this is the the first time on film that I've seen that it's like you, you suggest that you know you know there's something more there. He's not this incredible cynic all of the time. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's obviously just a, a particular way of looking at the world that that interests him, that captivates him, but he can do other things too, as this yeah. film shows. <laughs> I hope that works up to a point. Um, <laughs> I should have really fitted that anecdote in earlier, but but I forgot, so sorry. <laughs> Just say the last sentence strongly and confidently. That'll do. <laughs> I guess we'll bring this podcast to an end with a look at Happy End. Oh, it's obviously we planned it that way. Hanukkah's most recent film as of recording is the French film Happy End, which, in a shocking departure, features a bourgeois family. <laughs> I know, and they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Feeling weirdly like an oblique continuation of Amur, thanks to a number of characters and referenced events, though actually not related at all, but but at all. Uh, it stars Isabelle Huppert as Anne Laurent. Yes, Anne Laurent. 
Also, I like you mentioned, Uper has managed to pull off the remarkable trick of not seeming to have aged at all in a near two decades since the piano teacher. Yeah. <laughs> or possibly even aged backwards slightly. Um, uh, as the boss of a construction firm in the northern French city of Cali. The film begins with two disasters. A young girl documents a practice runner feeding her mother sedatives to her pet hamster before doping her mother, leading to her hospitalisation due to overdose, which results in the girl, Eve Fontine Arduin, being sent to stay with her philandering father and his new wife, and also a retaining wall collapsing at one of the family's firm's construction sites, nearly killing a worker. Anne, her brother Thomas, Matthew Kasevitz, and his wife Anaïs, and her father, Georges, Jean-Louis Trantignon, live together in separate apartments in one large house. And yes, that's right, there were characters called Anne and Georges Laurent, and an Ava, a recurring trait the PFI describes as being typical of Hanukkah's taste for intertextual jokiness, but I less charitably consider being useless at coming up with names. <laughs> also here is Anne's son, Pierre, played by the French Joaquin Phoenix, <laughs> uh, and there's also Toby Jones every now and then as Anne's fiance, and mm? <laughs> that was very much uh, hypocriticism of it. Yes, yes, uh, that, that's that's me trying to um, interpret my own writing, which was just some question marks at that point. <laughs> uh, Happy end, which you have no doubt guessed is an ironic title and contains no such thing. Feels in a number of ways like a minus any sympathy. We've talked a lot about Hanukkah's lack of completed narratives, but it's only here, for me, and I think less so for Scott, that it really feels like a problem, that finally that particular trait has run out of steam. Because here is where there is so little else to occupy the mind or fuel the imagination. There's a murder, with a horrible little murderer, and we know from the beginning who it is, but there's no Columbo to catch her out. The family is dysfunctional, but not particularly noteworthy or engaging. Pierre is a screw-up, but singularly uninteresting, and while Jean-Louis Trantignon is expectedly excellent, his character's desire to die seems to be related not to illness or infirmity, but to... boredom? (laughs) Maybe? There's some suggestion Georges has dementia, but if so, it's early, and could just as easily be the forgetfulness that comes with being 85. Certainly it's not cut and dried. The most interesting part of the film is, alas, one of the smallest parts, and that is the Moroccan couple who are the Laurent's cooks and housekeepers. There is so much potential there, with racism in France as well as the country's post-colonial heritage, including Pierre embarrassing the woman, Jamila, at Georges' birthday party by calling her their Moroccan slave, and then the husband, Rashid, willing to overlook the family's dog biting their daughter and play the loyal servant over fear of losing his job. And yet it almost seems incidental. Despite the clearly purposeful setting of Cali and the reference to the jungle, the migrant camp near the entrance to the Channel Tunnel. The family are perhaps amoral, but it's not a defining trait, and themes we've seen before of the cruelty or the abuse of power of the rich or influential are hinted at, but here not significant. Bleak and cynical an aspect as many of his other films may seem to have, they also contain humanity, but that's noticeably lacking here, and is probably the film's biggest failing. Meh. <laughs> I think my primary problem with this film is that, even though I should have learned my lesson by this point, I was trying to find something to emphasise with this collection of characters, and with 
maybe one exception. There's just no attack surface to do anything of the sort. Um, I mean, the characters are by and large not just given character flaws, but appear to be solely described by their character flaws. And it's yeah. very hard to care about them. <laughs> yeah, I think the only person I could get on with was... Um Jean-Louis Trantignon, but I think that was mostly yeah, because he was Jean-Louis Trantignon. Yeah, I, only because he had a whole other film of goodwill banked <laughs> in it. Is that you had any kind of sympathy for the character as well. I think of it, if that was a character that just came to be cold, I would not have found anything particularly interesting about him either. So, Except, of course, it's not the same character, but it, it's, it's really weird that it feels like it is. Um, and the, you know the names don't help, but it's not. So like, it's so weird. The name's not, but you know, his anecdote where does exactly the same thing happened yeah. in a more so. You know, it, you can say it's but not, it, but it's a nod and a wink, to it, isn't it? So it sort of comes across as a, a weird sort of half sequel. It, mm. It's nothing to do with it, but like, why is it in there? Yeah, and that's the biggest mystery in that. But yeah. Um, Sorry, please carry on. No, I, I, I kind of agree with the rest of it. I, I just, uh, I, I couldn't find any lesson or message or question in this one. Um, it, it, again, it, I didn't hate it. Um, uh, primarily because... No, I not any of these. Yeah, it's probably the weakest of these films, I think. Um, despite, it's actually quite well regarded, I think. But uh, for, for me, it's the weakest of the films we talked about today. Uh, primarily because I just couldn't find any into it at all. Um, mm-hmm. However, as I said, the table stakes are all there. Looks fantastic. Tremendous performances. It's kind of interesting and just trying to see exactly what's going on and where it's going with these questions or or this it's not even a story i don't know what it is it's just like it's it's like a couple of weeks in this family of flawed characters who you never really know all that much about you can't really delve into anything that they're doing or saying all that much and it's just all a bit weird um ultimately it's another one of these things where it's just a whole bunch of like here's a bunch of bad things Go and make your own, um, make up your own amusement from it. And, and I, I think by this point that uh, that well had run dry, and I couldn't really uh, be bothered to try and work my way into the heads of any of these characters. It's a, uh, I don't even think it's asking any questions. It's just a bunch of stuff, and um, it was not unpleasant to watch. I didn't, I don't regret watching it. I, I kind of recommend it, um, but it would be down at the bottom of this list certainly for me yeah. um, it's bottom of this list again I was still like, interested in it but though I think this time it was more me trying to find something yeah yeah exactly yeah whereas other films there are things there like you maybe not be given what they mean but I'd have to try as hard to find something in it to latch on to whereas in this it's um, and it, it gets so close to things so often there's the thing I mentioned about the Moroccan house um, mm. keepers um, because clearly um, Rashid is terrified of losing his job and yeah. that's why he's saying like he's willing to like overlook his daughter being bitten in the leg by a German shepherd because like how else is he really afraid of losing his job because then he asks um, Anne directly afterwards you know you're not thinking of leaving now that you've got engaged to Toby Jones yeah and <laughs> um, who may as well be called Toby Jones in the film. I don't know, he's barely in it. Why uh, <laughs> yeah. isn't there at all? Uh, apart from the shots where he's watching BBC News where there's some protest in Aberdeen. Uh, <laughs> shell workers. Yeah. I don't know what that was about. But yeah, it skirts so close to him and, and it feels like he's trying to say something again. The fact that it's Cali and the jungles mentioned, that's not coincidence. But I just, this mm. time I was like, I'm not really sure what you're saying. Because I don't know why you say anything in Cali otherwise, because it's such an ugly city. <laughs> um, and like the further north you go in France, the less nice it gets. Um, 
there are exceptions, of course, in Paris is in the north, but Cali's a particularly ugly city. So, yeah, not that you see a great deal of it, to be honest, um, mm. to be fair, um, but it's like, you know, you wouldn't set that there unless you had something to say, surely, of all the places you could set something in France. Particularly, it's like, he's Austrian, he doesn't presumably have any particular connection to that city. It's not like he, he's a he's a French filmmaker from Cali. Yeah. He's saying something by setting it there, as opposed to any of the other very beautiful cities or areas in France. And then there's a scene where um, Georges is going in his wheelchair along the the street and he sees this group of young black men who may be the same people that come to the restaurant at the end, I wasn't sure. And he's he's clearly pleading with them to like to kill him or they see maybe they would know how to get a, a gun or something they mm. ask the the hairdresser for later. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the one Okay, middle-aged white guy that comes past is sort of standing looking and he checks it okay because it's maybe suggesting that he's facing thinking of like these people are black and they're they're doing something but at the same point it's a group of young men um around a man and he's holding his watch in his hand so it looks understandably like they're forcing him to give him the watch rather than it, the truth is that he's offering it to them yeah so the, the color isn't actually relevant yeah, I mean, so <laughs> is it saying something there? Are we meant to to think that, or is it, there's a few times it just it feels like it's hinting at something, and then I don't know what it's. And he's uh, George is by far the most interesting character. Uh, he's basically the only character, yeah, apart from the evil little murderer, and that kid's great. Um, if she's the actual age of a character, which is twelve, then. She's great and um, evil. Yes, great or actually a murderer, yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, like, murderous 12-year-old. Well, that's a, a thing you don't see often, I guess. Um, so good, but uh, yeah. And then, you know, Matthew Kasovitz, his character is incredibly shallow. It's like, what's his character trait? Wanker. Fine. Okay, it's not interesting. And his his wife is so milk toast. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly there, there's some tension in the film because I was, for a good chunk of that film, I was very worried about the baby. Yeah. So it's like, it's the one real source of tension in that film that I fear. I was like, oh God, she's already killed one person. What's going to happen to this child? <laughs> because I thought it was actually going to be quite predictable and like, you know, resentment of the young new brother or something. It doesn't go there. So, I don't know. Um Yeah. But it's interesting enough to talk about, I guess. And I was still interested in that. It's just, it's so, so empty compared to his other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I would still recommend it. I would recommend all these. I think they're all interesting enough to watch. Um, although uh, I would put this bottom of the list if you were to watch any of these six. Yeah. Um, all the others definitely come ahead of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> empty is a, a good term for it, I think. As you say, it's just... There just doesn't seem to be much to it. I'm, I'm sure you could read into a lot of it if you wanted to. Um, you could probably... Mm-hmm. It's vague enough that you could probably interpret anything you like out of this, um, but I don't necessarily think that's a strong point. And, uh, yeah, it didn't make for a particularly satisfying uh, film. Um, yeah. yeah. No, not, if not something awful, can mean... It, yeah, if something can mean anything, then it can end up meaning nothing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You need some structure. 
Well, I guess that'll wrap us up for today. If you would like to get in touch with us, then you can do. Um, through the old emails at podcast at com. you can get us on Twitter at FudsOnFilm or Facebook at facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm. But until next time, I will bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew will do too. I'll feed us in. No, adieu! Adieu, adieu to you and you and you. Cheers.